Welcome to the Disgruntled Rats Podcast. Well, hello everybody and welcome to the Disgruntled Rats Podcast for Sunday, 10 July 2011. We've got an exciting show for you here today. Um, the biggest item we have coming up just off the bat is we're going to be presenting a uh, an hour-long presentation at the Java User Group in the Twin Cities, um, Minneapolis, St. Paul region on uh, in August. So be sure to check our website for more information on that. We'll have uh, show notes for that for people to review. And hopefully if you're listening to us in the Twin Cities area, you can join us for that and ask us some questions and we'll uh, drive forward. So our icebreaker today is... There's an asteroid coming to Earth. The president is on the TV, and they've just released it to the public. We've got 12 hours until this asteroid, essentially the size of Texas, hits Earth. And uh, chances of living are slim to none. So you've got 12 hours to live. What do you do? Um, Mike Boldishar, what would you do? Uh, Let's see. 12 hours to live. I would grab the beer in my fridge and drive to a big hill where I'd start a big bonfire, and people could dance around, and we could sing, and <laughs> kind of pretend like uh, the end of the world is coming, and we could all drink the Kool-Aid, and it would be a quite a party we would have on the top of this hill. And uh, we would just wait and watch, sit in lawn chairs, and watch the end of the world come down. Uh, I like that. That's good. That's, yeah, I like that. That's really it. I don't know. I'm not very creative, but uh, that's probably really what I would do. I like that. How about you, Sean? Yeah, I think I was thinking that also, actually. So there's probably not going to be too many hilltops that are available, but but that's uh, parties will be on top of all of them. I think I just grab my grab my family, um, some lawn chairs, head out there, and it's, it's probably going to be an incredible sight to see this um, gigantic asteroid coming raging towards us. Uh, yeah, it'd be something to. You wouldn't want to miss out on, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, yeah. I mean, if you knew the end was coming and there's nothing more you could really do about it, you can't fight it. The only thing you have left is acceptance. You kind of don't need to go through the denial stage <laughs> or anger stage. Just kind of just kind of go outside and make the best of it, I suppose. Yeah, there's no no point of even looting anything, right? It's just, just enjoy the last few hours. And <laughs> <laughs> yep, I like that. Yeah, I think uh, not to jump in the bandwagon too much, but I think I'd I'd go right there with you. Um, grab a bottle of scotch and just grab my own lawn chair, maybe bring my truck out there, play some music. I'd bring some guns and just shoot them up in the air. Uh, <laughs> probably bring some fireworks, <laughs> shoot them off. I mean, what the hell, maybe blow the truck up too. Well, what's, it, what's, it, what's it matter? <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, uh, I think th- you probably want to stay out of the urban areas, because oh, you yeah. inevitably have just complete anarchy and people you know hedonistic uh craziness going on and you know just people blowing everything up burning everything but uh yeah if we go to some hill somewhere away from all the madness probably be a nice peaceful end so there we go that's our icebreaker for today if you have your own uh in in impression on what you would do if you had 12 hours to live please let us know at uh disgruntledrats at gmail.com and if that, if an asteroid does come, you guys are all invited to our party on the hill. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should all release nukes. Like every country release nukes at it, so at least we can see that awesome explosion going on. And yeah, be... <laughs> that would be pretty cool. I mean, yeah, we, least... we already paid for them. We might as well shoot them off like the biggest fireworks we have, right? So. 
<laughs> yes, put them on a time delay and just watch the sky glow green. Oh, yeah. Great. Well, like you were saying earlier, Sean, we need Bruce Willis. I mean, we at least have to try, right? We have to send him up there and, and oh, yeah. give, give him a him few Give him an nukes. oil drilling rig and uh, some breathing apparatus, shoot him out there, see what he can do. <laughs> him and yeah. Chuck Norris, and who else would we send up there? <laughs> John claude Van Damme. Oh, yeah, he's coming back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's he's crazy. That's another topic, though. Um, now the shuttle's program, the shuttle program's done, I don't know. Be, it might be hurting. Yeah. Uh, comes to pass. But all right, moving on to the news. Uh, computer graphics. Mike's gonna lead us off with our first article. Sure. Um, before I start, this podcast is gonna be probably a little bit shorter than the usual podcasts. Uh, not much news, and uh, other than that, we we have a Sean giving a presentation at the end on something interesting about mapping. But uh, don't expect a really long podcast this time. Um, so, to get started, uh, we're in computer graphics here, and a company called Neo Access has released a graphics engine that allows you to produce um, 3D applications for iOS devices. They offer some licensing options for this engine, um, but it appears to be have limited functionality for the free version. They offer commercial versions as well with different amounts of functionality. The engine is .NET based, and they have a, a lot of tools uh, included in the engine, model viewers and content creation. So congrats to the NeoAxis team on hitting their milestone and making their first release. Uh, good job, guys. Uh, let's see. Next bit of news here is that there's um, a company called Neurosystems. They've created an augmented reality system. So what what they have is a system where you take a video and they have some cool um, online videos that show this off. You take a checkerboard and you place it in front of the video and they can render 3D objects on these checkerboards. So uh, practical applications, um, maybe movies or uh, real-time systems for, for gaming um, in three dimensions, augmented reality gaming. I could see that being useful. Maybe you have checkerboards out on your lawn and you're playing a big game of chess against your friend and there's augmented pieces all around you. That'd be pretty neat. Uh, so what's neat is that you change the camera position and the correct transformations are applied to 3D objects and that makes them appear like the camera's moving around them. They had a C-3PO demo and they had he, he was moving around on a checkerboard and it, it was just a really neat application of technology. And so if you want to take a look at that, it's at uh, neurosystems.net. And their product is called Substance 3D. Moving yeah, on to... That looks pretty neat. Yeah, did you check that out, Sean? Yeah, I looked at it a bit. That's, that's pretty cool stuff. Looking forward to see what the future entails. It's more and more advanced. Yeah, it'd be really neat on mobile devices. I think that's what they're working on as well. So um, Greg Kaiser... From computerworld.com wrote up an article about the judges ruling against Google in their Street View Y Spy lawsuit. Uh, they declined to dismiss charges against Google uh, when they allegedly violated the Federal Wiretap Act during their um, data collection, data mining, as they drove their Street View cars around. Uh, they've been doing this since 2007, and so they snap photographs of the streets and collect GPS data. They're also uh, mapping locations of Wi-Fi networks to build databases to increase 
uh, mobile accessibility to the to the internet and determine whereabouts. And uh, Google initially said that they were just looking for pieces of data. It turns out they're actually harvesting complete usernames and passwords and unprotected wireless networks uh, through uh, through their unprotected wireless networks, including emails. So, uh, how do you guys think this will affect Google Street View in the future? I think it's going to be uh, negative. Um, obviously, I mean, if if, if they're proven that they uh, they're lying, you know, and, and I love Google. Get, don't get me wrong, but if they're if they lied about you know collecting personal information, username, passwords, emails um, from unprotected networks, that's obviously a bad bad hit on Google. And uh, I think they've already been banned in some European countries. I can't remember specifically which one, but I remember reading an article about. Um, I think it was France or something like that. Like they're saying, no, no more Google Street View. You know, you're not coming around here anymore, um, just for privacy concerns and obviously this whole uh, shabacle. So I mean, I think it's going to be a negative thing for them. It'll inevitably blow over, um, but for right now, it's just not good for Google's PR campaign. I guess I didn't hear that they were harvesting usernames and passwords from the networks. That's new news to me. You guys hear about that at all? Yeah, according to this article, <laughs> that's the first time I heard about it, too. I know that people were upset that they were going around just sniffing access points, and and they thought that, that might have been wiretapping or something, something illegal, but uh, it well, seemed, it if might... they're really sniffing, that's that seems really illegal. Yeah, agreed. Well, I mean, it's anyone could go around and sniff packets, right? But maybe, like, these passwords that they harvested were sent over unencrypted, or I, I don't know, maybe, maybe it wasn't... Maybe it's worse than it... Or it's not as bad as it looks, but who knows? I, I'd, I'd be surprised if they're actually trying to trying to harvest or trying to crack usernames and passwords. If they were doing that, then that's um, way out of the scope of this whole data mining thing, which I, I think maybe they, they were just trying to get as much information as possible, and they happen to come across a couple of things that you know they wouldn't right. want to keep in their databases. So maybe maybe we have to establish intent you know, before we go too far. Like, yeah, did they intend to collect... You know, private information, um, right. or did they just accidentally fall upon it? So, I think the courts will probably pull that out. But the fact that they uh, they weren't honest to begin with, according to this um, this lawsuit, is is kind of disturbing. But more to follow. Yeah, yeah. It, it seems not so illegal to me to sniff SSIDs when you're driving around because people are broadcasting them, right? And you could just turn on your laptop and see an SSID in the area. That doesn't seem as bad or as evil as going into networks and doing malicious things. So I thought the original lawsuit was just for sniffing SSIDs, but um, I guess the courts will figure all this out. Yeah, let them work, let the, let the million-dollar lawyers figure it out. <laughs> all right, moving on to uh, another article by Craig Kaiser, or Greg Kaiser at ComputerWorld.com. Um, the massive botnet uh, TDL4, which is both the name of the, the Trojan bot, um, as well as the ensuing collection of compromised computers, is labeled the most sophisticated threat today to PCs. Um, Kaspersky, Kaspersky Labs uh, said that you know it's practically indestructible, and others agree. Um, TDL4, what it does is it installs a rootkit on uh, the MBR of the PCs and effects. And it's invisible to the uh, the OS, and it's also invisible to uh, any security software designed to sniff it out, because it essentially has access to the lowest levels of the computer OS. So, 
<clears throat> that's not the secret weapon, though. Um, what makes TDL4 so scary is that uh, it actually has its own um, encryption as well as its use of public peer-to-peer uh, network for the instructions issued to the malware by the CNC servers or command and control servers. So you've got an extremely advanced um, Trojan botnet uh, network out there. They estimate it to be about 4.5 million computers um, that are infected and can be controlled at any one time. Now these are used f- by the command and control uh, servers and the nefarious people that sit in the shadows in their mom's basement behind them to uh, do DDoS attacks against uh, servers as well as you know expand their network and to conduct spam and phishing campaigns. So it installs this TDL4, you know, it opens up the computer and installs nearly 30 different malicious programs on the PC it controls, and very few of those can be detected by security software. So, you know, whoever invented this program obviously is a very, you know, I want to say hyper-professional. They know how they detect uh, the bots, they know how to subvert the uh, protection on computers, and they know what they're doing. So... I mean, the the article at Computer World sounded kind of desperate. I mean, it seemed like a lot of the security institutions, which are, uh, which were developed and you know pride themselves on being able to t- detect and destroy these threats, are kind of at a loss at how to how to do this because the, <laughs> I mean, they keep changing it. it. Whenever they try and get on it, it just you know they they change it a little bit, and because it has access to the MBR, the computer, and just opens it up, they just change it and it works. So it's hard hard to kill. Um, I don't know, kind of scary. So I just reformatted my computer, so I, I think I'm probably <laughs> safe. So I feel yeah, good about that. But who knows? Yeah, that'd probably clear it out, right? Or I don't. Is uh, where, where is it storing it at? Installs the rootkit where? Installs the rootkit at uh, the master boot record, um, mm-hmm. the first sector of the hard drive. So if you okay. wipe the hard drive and and delete all the partitions and delete the MBR and do a clean install, you should be good. It, it, what it does is the code is stored um, and sector zero to bootstrap the operating system after the BIOS does its startup checks. Gotcha. So it essentially is the first you know service that anything runs. You know, it's right in the the main MBR. So it's just bad news in the computer. That's really scary because you <laughs> the the MBR is not a piece of the disk that you regularly wipe out, and a lot of the virus checking software. I'm not even sure. Has ability to modify the MBR when it, yeah. the operating system's running. That's one of the things it says here. Is the, you know, because it installs the rootkit on the MBR, it's invisible to both the operating system, and it's also invisible to the security software. So, I mean, it's essentially just runs without you being able to do anything about it. You never even know it's there. Yeah, you can repartition your hard drive, or you can delete the Windows partition, and the MBR is still there. You can put a brand new Windows operating system on, and it would bootstrap and it would install all the viruses again. That's that's crazy. That's almost as bad as having a virus in your BIOS. The BIOS would be, I think, a little bit worse, but man, if these things <laughs> start spreading around quite a bit, we're going to be in a lot of trouble. We're going to need a lot of uh, geek squads out at people's houses pretty soon. <laughs> right, and then what happens when they flip the switch and all of a sudden our computers become mindless zombies, you know, spamming whitehouse.gov or whatever with just DDoS attacks and then it's just, yeah, it's crazy to think what 4.5 million PCs nowadays can do when they're concerted in a synchronized effort. Oh, yeah. That's why everybody should use Linux. <laughs>
Linux doesn't use hard drives with, with bootstraps? Or? Um, well, I'm just guessing that they didn't write it for the MBR of a Linux partition. Um, so, <laughs> in fact, yeah, I'm guessing it's a Windows MBR problem. Yeah, it says it affects primarily Windows PCs. But, you know, whoever made this is obviously one of the more intelligent people on our Earth today, so <laughs> we'll see if they can they can probably whip one of those up for Linux, you know, over a cup of coffee in the morning. <laughs> we'll see. Um, all right, moving on to the Android section. Go ahead, Mike. Okay. Yeah, we kind of had some random news in there. It was probably uh, a little bit more than just computer graphics the last couple articles, but um, now we're in the Android world. And uh, the first article here, it's from Engadget.com, and the author was Terrence O'Brien. Uh, what Terrence says is there's a rumor that Google Maps will be uh, available in offline mode. And not much news to be said here, since it's a rumor and we don't know a lot of the details, but uh, this is a, a major threat to other GPS manufacturers, such as Garmin and TomTom. Um, some ideas that I have are, you know, Google could create their own GPS devices running Android and sell them as just offline GPS devices. Or um, they could allow you to not have to buy data plans with your phones, and you could have Google navigation systems built in without uh, the data plans and turn-by-turn and -turn navigation. So either way, uh, the other companies are um, at risk because this product is free, of course. The, the Google Maps navigation is free, and these other companies charge for their navigation system. So um, maybe, you know, that's one of the big features of my phone is just having the navigation system available, and that's one of the reasons why I have a data plan is when I'm looking for something and I'm out in the middle of nowhere, I can just say, you know, find me food, and it'll show me food in the area, and I can just go there. Well, if that's offline mode availability, um, there'd be more and more people that would be signing up to buy Android phones without data plans that could do this type of stuff. So, anyway, rumors and uh, speculation, but uh, kind of a cool idea that Google Maps would be offline. Probably require quite a bit of data, though. Do you guys have any mm -hmm. thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I like the idea that you just had of um, getting into the navigation market for those that don't want to purchase uh, cellular plans. Um, just having a GPS device, GPS navigation device, is pretty cool. And they, yeah, the, the data though, I'm sure that you know they have GPS units now that can store the uh, quite a bit. I, I wouldn't worry too much about the data size, I guess. But yeah, I like that idea. Okay. Moving on, uh, Google Plus is now available on the Android market, and I just got an invitation the other day to Google Plus from Michael <laughs> Kalmbach, uh, from one of uh, my peers at the U, and I'd like to thank him for that officially. Um, so this is, Google Plus is Google's new social networking technology, and they have a lot of cool features in there, and they're trying to reinvent social networking uh, for mobile devices and for um, different ways of organizing data and filtering data. Uh, so far, I think it's really neat. I wish there were more people on there. It's really a restricted service right now. Um, but the main point of this article is that they have um, Google Plus available on the Android market. So there's a downloaded app that I have here, and I can log in and... I can kind of see there's different options in the app, such as stream, huddle, photos, profile, and circles. 
um, what they did when I created my account was they took my Google profile account and that became the basis for my Google Plus account. Um, what they have in cir circles are different groups of people. So you have family, uh, friends, acquaintances, and you can create other circles. So I assume that some of this, these circles are going to be used for filtering data that you're interested in reading and for filtering data that other people are reading as well. And there's also ways to follow people. Uh, so I think that's an interesting concept because that's one of the big problems with Facebook is that you everybody's a friend. You're a friend or you're not a friend. Well, there's different levels of friendship and different levels of information that you want to share with people about what you know, you're eating for lunch, for instance. Maybe your boss doesn't care that you're eating a, a ham sandwich or something, so you might not want to send that out to all your circles. So uh, I like the idea that they've created categories for groups of people, and there's other features in the Google Plus uh, application, such as automatically syncing your images that you take from your camera to the, to the cloud so that you can put them on your profile, um, but they're not publicly available until you let them know that. Uh, also, there's this feature called Huddle, which I haven't played a lot with, but uh, I think the idea here from the video that I looked at was that you can find your friends and you can you can meet up, you just type in your friends' names, and then you can start um, video conferencing and, and chatting um, with people who are online and see their webcams and, and do other things. Uh, what they hinted at was uh, the ability to determine GPS locations and find out who's around you in the area. So maybe you're, you know, going someplace at an event and your friend is at the same event. Um, you, it would tell you, or you'd be able to get together with them easier. Um, so really cool features. Uh, glad that somebody's uh, tackling some of these problems and in, in inventing and innovating in the social networking area. I don't think a lot of people have been adding these types of features. So good for Google. I hope it works out. Their last uh, social networking site kind of bombed out. I maybe signed up for it, but I don't even remember what the name of it is anymore. So MySpace? <laughs> did they buy MySpace? <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just kidding. Oh, okay. I thought it was Orcut or Oric or something. Anyway, th this is a brand new thing, and it's uh, pretty hard to get accounts. I think they're even selling accounts or access or invites to Google Plus. So if Google has some more invitations and would like to send them to, to us at D DGR, uh, they can find our email address and we will hand them out to to evaluate their products even more. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, next up, we have the HTC Evo 3D released, an article by Jaroslav Steckel from AndroidPolice.com. It's a pretty good review of the of the Evo 3D. Uh, the hardware's received a major upgrade. There's a 1.2 gigahertz dual core processor and a 960 by 540 uh, LCD screen. And uh, there's more cameras. There's so there's two cameras in the back. Let me take 3D video and 3D images. Uh, the they also support a 3D viewing, but it's it's kind of uh, uh, from this article it sounds like it's not very um, friendly. It's a very narrow viewing angle, and outside of that angle, you get nauseous quickly. And so the author says he's, he probably doesn't see himself using it too much to to view things in 3D from the phone. But it's very neat that uh, they're taking 3D imagery now. I think that's going to be. I mean, that's the next step. These chips can support uh, dual 
1080p or dual high definition video feeds in, and now you're just stereo using stereo vision, knowing the pos- the positions of each camera, you can start to create depth or know the depth of things in the imagery. So that's that's pretty neat stuff. Hmm. Yeah, I'm really disappointed about the viewing angle on that thing. I have an Evo right now, um, and this seems like a, a good upgrade for me to get this Evo 3D. Um, but I, I'm not so sure about the, the 3D technology. If you, you can't even view it very well. Well, uh, you don't you don't have to use it though either. I mean, that's it's just like a little fancy feature, I guess, like the Nintendo 3D or the Nintendo's little handheld. Yes. Yeah. Right. That thing's that thing's kind of cool. It's kind of got like. I don't know if it has like a depth sensor to kind of tell how far away you are, but the I don't know. It's everyone's trying to do 3D projection now without without goggles or glasses, so it's you don't have to use it. I guess I th- I think it'd still be a good phone. The only thing that looks bad for me, I guess, is the the battery life being so short. It it probably burns up a lot of juice with that dual core raging at uh, 1.2 gigahertz. But, yeah, definitely. I wonder what it takes to make a game use the 3D technology or what you have to turn on or if it just automatically works with OpenGL ES. Um, be interesting to do that's, some tests. Yeah, that's good. You, you did, I don't know. <laughs> I guess you have to render two images for sure every frame so that you can uh, project them each at you know different... I'm not even sure how that projection works. I should look into that. Yep, I don't know either. Well... We'll investigate. <laughs> yeah, if anybody does know and you want to let us know, and we'll uh, we'll highlight you next week if you want to come on and talk to us about all the 3D rendering works and uh, just how to kind of develop it. So, um, moving on to 3D modeling, uh, mobile worlds are now a reality. Um, there's this awesome. Uh, let me start over. Okay, pr- pr- product designers when they harness time-consuming procedures. Um, in prototype construction, they can essentially they build themselves virtual worlds to uh, sort of easily, um, you know, walk around a, a space without actually building it in real life. So it saves time and uh, cuts costs associated with actually building a model environment. So they they build it virtually, right? So um, this started off with with a cave. It's called the acronym stands for Cave Automatic Virtual Environment. Um, cave being a company that developed it. And now they have the Frave, which is the flexible, reconfigurable cave. Uh, it's essentially Cave 2.0, um, which is much better. It's actually cheaper. And uh, if you take a look at our show notes and go to the website, you'll see it in action. It's, it's pretty cool. Um, it's made up of 10 plasma screens. Uh, each screen has a diagonal of about 65 inches, which can be arranged in different ways. Uh, when they form a floor with an enclosure on three sides, the user is uh, very deeply immersed in a virtual explorative world. So the user stands there and navigates using a little glove. It's almost like a minority report in a sense, except there's it's all around them. Um, the screens at the side can be opened wide uh, with a tracking system on the screens, which automatically adapts the image to display um, to the movement of the side section. So even the side sections can be uh, disconnected from the system entirely if you like to. Um, and as the Frave consists of end-user devices, it's significantly less expensive than the Cave. Um, and it's an advantage that actually could promote the more widespread use of this virtual reality system. So what you have is a completely immersive experience, uh, still 2D 
obviously, because it's just displayed on the plasmas, but that could change too, and you could have an immersive 3D environment um, using relatively inexpensive materials. So I, I think it's pretty cool. Looking at the pictures, I was like, wow, you know, imagine playing Unreal Tournament and something like that, or, you know, just all sorts of practical applications aside from gaming. But, I mean, it's pretty neat. What do you guys think? Yeah, that looks awesome. There was a, I was at Iowa State uh, working at the Virtual Reality Application Center there. And they actually have a, a Virtual Reality Cave, and it's um, you, use the, you wear the goggles and stuff, so things are floating around in 3D and um, from all sides and angles. But this, this looks, looks um, much more inexpensive way of getting something similar. And eventually, I think, with um, as, as 3D technology goes further, we'll be able to get that same feel or a similar feel with that. I'm curious as to like if they actually needed the F in their in the acronym for Brave, <laughs> they just didn't want to use Rave. Rave. <laughs> I love the recursive acronyms there. Because cave is recursive and then flexible reconfigurable cave, which has like two recursive elements in it. So it's kinda cool. Kinda just like GNU, you know. Uh you know, GNU is not Unix. <laughs> <laughs> Yep, exactly. I actually had to do some research to find out what exactly those acronyms meant, because in the first article, article they just referenced FRAVE, so I had to look up FRAVE, then I had to look up, okay, well, what does CAVE stand for? And sure enough, <laughs> and in CAVE, there's also CAVE, so <laughs> CAVE is the the ultimate acronym for this, but pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Valve, they've been, they've been releasing a lot of stuff for free lately. Uh, and to include now their software development kit. Before, you, you could get it before if you purchased a game, but now it's, uh, since they just released um, Team Fortress 2 for free, uh, essentially that was one of the games you ha- initially had to own. If you owned uh, Team Fortress 2, you could then have access to the Hammer Editor and their uh, additional utilities. But since they released that for free, now they're saying, well, just we'll release a source uh, software development kit also for free. So that's pretty awesome. I've used the hammer editor in the past. The thing's it's pretty slick, and all these tools are nice. They have like face posers, uh, model viewers, and it's just uh, if, if you're ambitious enough, or you, you like to just mod things, then have at it. Now it's it's pretty fun, pretty pretty good tools. Hmm. So what did you use the hammer editor for, Sean, in the past? Uh, I was I was playing around with like I was just curious, really. That's why I started using it, but. Um, map editing, and I started doing like AI pathing, so you can kind of set up nodes, waypoints for for units, just like to start to walk in around in that general area. Uh, for like, um, I guess like if there's security guys, where their routes would be, things like that. You can basically have access to the. Um, I, was, I was playing Half Life Two, so it gave you all the map, all the um, textures and models and things from Half Life Two, and you can just build your own little level, build your own little game. It's pretty neat because then you know, like there's also a cool thing like you can set up security cameras and you can route the security cameras imagery to this security um, console you set up also. So it's just it's just really really cool tool. Wow, I can't believe that security camera video can be routed to uh, terminals basically anywhere in the game. Yeah, yeah, it was it was neat. I mean, it, it's all just you know. Uh, changing your camera's position, doing a render, and then mapping that to a surface and putting that on wherever that screen is in your game. But that's yeah, pretty pretty neat stuff that all that's available to you um, for free now. <laughs> okay, cool. 
moving on to, to gaming here. I have an article on uh, Heroes of Might and Magic 3 coming to Android. And this article is written by Artem Rosakovsky from AndroidPolice.com. Sorry if we uh, butcher your name. Uh, so fans of the original Heroes of Might and Magic series, uh, that's I'm one of those people, and I think Brian is also. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you, may, you may want to uh, prepare for this one. So there was a, a port of Heroes of Might and Magic 2 to Android, um, but now the same developer by the name of Pe- Pelia, um, he's now managed to do the same thing with Heroes of Might and Magic 3, dubbed VCMI. So it's the VCMI project, they call it. And it's an open source effort to rewrite the uh, Heroes of Magic 3 game engine uh, for Android. So you can use the same uh, graphics, maps, spells, heroes, towns, um, and everything else in the game. So that that's really, really cool. That, that game has a lot of depth to it, and that's something you could play um, when you're traveling or uh, when you have free time. Uh, and it doesn't require a lot of intense gra- graphics capabilities. It's just mostly 2D animations. At least 2 was. I don't remember if 3 exactly was was the same. 3 was the same. It was okay. the same as 2. Graphics-wise, they just started going to the 3D world at 4 or 5, I believe. But I remember playing 3 extensively in Iraq. I, I think I spent about a 1,000 hours of my downtime on it, just <laughs> playing it. Um, they have these uh, these <clears throat> player-developed sort of like competition maps where you just go for the high score. And, uh, you know, the replayability is just great in that game because no matter how many times you play it, you're always going to have something different. And just the randomness of, you know, every week a different creature will randomly spawn all over the map. And, you know, if your army's strong enough, you absorb them into you. So it really has a lot of strategic value, that game does. And I'm excited, first off, to see it come to the Android. And I'm also excited to, to play it again because, I mean, that that's one of those those classic games that, is really hard to emulate and replicate, you know. So it, it's good that uh, the community is, is taking up arms and, and building it <laughs> themselves for the Android. I wish they'd do that for Final Fantasy VII or Final Fantasy III. Oh, yeah. That would be epic. Yeah, yeah. I never I never played this series, but you guys, your enthusiasm just got me curious. I think I'll I'll buy the full uh, game for the for the data and run this engine on it. Try it out. Yeah, Sean, if you if you played Hero of Might and Magic three like today, you would love it. Even though it's like <laughs> ten years old or whatever, it's just yeah. uh, the graphics, you know, are, are okay, but the playability of it is just really fun. Um, it's a pretty cool game. Is it mainly single player then? Is playing against the AI? Mainly, it's turn based. So yeah. you know, if you wanted to play against another player, there is a multiplayer option, but you have to wait for them to take their turn. And as you progress into the game and start to micromanage your cities, as Mike knows. Um, sometimes it takes it takes you know fifteen twenty minutes per turn. So the playability uh, um, with somebody else is 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 there, but it's not the greatest. And they do have a multiple player per turn option, so you can have people simultaneously doing their actions during one turn. But you know, still, if somebody takes twenty minutes longer than the other person to complete their turn because they're really anal about their their city and their heroes and everything, then uh, it's kind of it's kind of tough. So, but yeah, single player is really fun. It's a great game. I'll check it out. Cool. Yeah, my favorite strategy in the the second version, H- Here's My Magic 2, was to get ghosts, and then you get ghosts, and then if you get enough ghosts and you kill 
weak creatures, they keep accumulating more ghosts. So pretty soon you have hordes of ghosts, and any <laughs> army that comes at you just gets destroyed. <laughs> <laughs> the exponential rise of the ghosts, like zombies. Yep, they nerfed those pretty bad in the next versions of the game, but that was always my favorite strategy. That's cool. I like uh, I like what I do is I get a couple cities and get them um, basically level five. You know, like you get the top tier uh, creatures, and then I just sit there with my heroes for like six months and get like a hundred black dragons and a hundred titans and a <laughs> hundred yeah. archangels, and then I just take my army of a hundred of the the most aggressive units in the game and just go around and just smash everything. It's wonderful. Yeah, when you get those high-level heroes that are immune to spells, it's pretty tough to beat them. Indeed. Cool. Alright, so moving on. um, There's a study that was done. Kindler, gentler video games may actually be good for players. And if you're listening to our podcast, chances are you've played a few video games in your life. And if you haven't, I'm sorry for you, and I hope you start. Because uh, video games actually do, according to some studies impact our state of mind um, immediately afterwards. There was a... This story is reprinted um, from materials provided by Ohio State, and the original article is written by Jeff Grabmeyer uh, from ScienceDaily.com. So gentle video games may actually calm players and make them happier people. The test included 150 random college students uh, were assigned to play one of three types of games for 20 minutes on the Wii. Uh, there was a relaxing game, such as Endless Ocean, where essentially you, you're a scuba diver swimming around a beautiful ocean, and nothing can harm you. I mean, you see sharks, but they don't bite you. They just kind of rub up, rub up next to you and say hi. And uh, no stingrays are going to poke you or anything like that. It's just kind of a chill game. A neutral game, such as Super Mario Galaxy, where there's really no good or evil. I mean, you can't really consider the bad guys in that game evil. They're just kind of the antagonists. You know, that's it. Uh, and then a violent game, such as Resident Evil 4, which is clearly defined as good and evil, and the enemies are very creepy. So, um, they then participated in a reaction time test, in which they were told they were going to be competing with an unseen other player. And there was actually no other player, but they were told they were going to be competing against one. So the goal was to see who could push a button faster when prompted. The winner would receive a small amount of money, and the loser would be blasted with noise through the headphones. Uh, <laughs> the catch was that the participants chose how much money their competitor would get if he or she won, and how loud and long of a noise blast they would get if they lost. So the results showed that the participants who played a violent video game were more aggressive by choosing a louder and longer noise blast for their opponents than the people that uh, play the neutral or relaxing game. Um, and those who played the neutral game were more aggressive than those who played the relaxing game. So it's kind of interesting. If you play uh, very chill games, chances are you'll be a happier, better person than somebody who <laughs> binges on Resident Evil 4 on your Sunday and then goes to work on Monday and just wants to break stuff. So pretty cool. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I, like, I always like to look more at the how the data was collected and like what the, the constants were and what the variables were and um, yeah, that's that's interesting stuff. I just saw a documentary on a game called Super Columbine RPG Massacre. No way. And yeah, it was uh, it was it was pretty interesting. And they went all in in great depth about the whole possibility or looking at data that suggests whether um, violent games actually create violent people. And and um, I don't know. It was 
it was uh, it's a very long document. We probably could have summed it up in half the amount of time, but it was it was interesting that um, this this whole battle is taking place between uh, who's who's to say. All right, I guess like what what does the data actually show? And I don't know. It's yeah. Well, it's, the other interesting part is that that these are fast paced games, like the Resident Evil Four one. I mean, it might be violent, but it's also very fast paced and takes a lot of concentration to play. Versus something that's maybe relaxing and doesn't take very much concentration. You can play it and not have to worry so much about a split-section decision. So right. it'd be interesting to play a game where you really had to get into it that was non-violent, that where you had to make quick decisions and and uh, maybe navigation, and you get points based on how how well you can um, move your mouse and keyboard around. So. Uh, there's other elements at play here other than just violence in these, yeah. in these differences between these games. Like Mist, something where you just kind of, there's no real enemy, you just kind of puzzles and navigation, like you said. That would be considered, I guess, not relaxing, but not definitely not violent. Yeah. Yep. As, uh, okay, so the next article is, this game is actually not, it's violent, and <laughs> I don't know. It's it's all about like cartoon-looking type of characters. But the Team Fortress Two uh, is now f- free to download and play from uh, from Valve. And that this game is I I like it a lot. I play it every so often. I kind of go in, in waves of playing different games, and I'll get under Team Fortress Two wave for a while. And it's it's pretty fun. I'm glad that they're releasing it for free. I guess they're they're trying with a, a little bit of a microtransaction experiment to to get money here and there off of it, but the, for the most part it's all playable and free, so it's it's pretty neat. Very nice of, of Source or Valve to do that. Yeah, I, I thought it was cool. Um, I don't know how many people actually buy in-game items. Um, I, I guess if there were weapons and, and upgrades and things that were necessary for the game, people would buy them maybe more, but I can't see myself buying a hat just for a game <laughs> because it looks cool. Yeah, I haven't seen what the what they're trying to sell through there, but I don't know. Maybe if you can mod your character, the look and feel of them, that, that works out. Uh, I mean, that that sells here and there. Oh yeah. I don't know if they can. If you can, I don't think it'd be fair to if you could just buy a more powerful weapon. That would kind of, um, you know, how do you balance that into it? It's well, yeah. One of the things you know, like. Okay, I, I may or may not have... I mean, we've all played World of Warcraft, you know how it is. You, you know that there's yeah. like 10 million people that are just addicted to it, so... <laughs> you know, th- I remember there was one point a couple years ago uh, where they had a, one of these ethereal horses that was like... Oh, you know, right, You right. know, they could microtransaction. For 25 bucks, you could buy a horse, the money would go to the tsunami effort or wherever it was. And, uh, you know, I think within like an hour or two or a day or something like that of, of having this available, they made like $10 million or some, just something crazy, millions, you know, just for the cool horse. And, and people are willing to spend, if, if you're into a game enough and you're at a certain point in your life where expendable income is, you know, available, I think people would be willing to, to jump in the microtransaction bandwagon just for customization, um, you know, in Heroes of New Earth, you can you can go to the store and buy like alt avatars and alt heroes and you know different uh, like words, uh, pit, you know, like different uh, phrases that come up when you kill someone and stuff like that. Uh-huh. And it's very uh, it made a lot of money off that. You know, we're talking like million dollars money. So 
Yeah, I think that it really appeals to certain people. But if you're more uh, frugal and financially smart, <laughs> I don't think microtransactions are the way to go in a game. But you know, they they exist and they work. I think. Yeah, I I really like Riot's uh, League of Legends game. They're the way they handle microtransactions. They allow you to build up experience as you play more games and as you get better. And you can actually use these experience to to purchase items. I mean, they allow you to do the m- microtransactions where you actually pay real money and you could buy it right away. But they give you that alternative route of where you can build up your character and play multiple games and get a um, this virtual income for through experience. I think that's a pretty cool way of doing it too. Very cool. So, so what if the next um, Battlefield game was free, but you bought every single gun? Would you guys favor that? I don't know if I'd favor it, but it would certainly, you know, from a developer standpoint, they'd have to look at it from the dollar signs figure. Like, are we going to make more money if we sell uh, microtransactions? So instead of getting $50 flat per person, no monthly service fee, you know, say we have 20 guns, each for $3 a gun, we're going to assume that if somebody really wants to play the game, like Nick Nick Kettner, our good friend, would inevitably <laughs> buy $60 worth of guns. And then an additional guns or mods for the guns, like say you want the cool golden AK-47 or golden AT-4, then you got to pay, you know, 350 for the gun. You know, I think that uh, financially, from a business model perspective, they, they're onto something there. Um I, I think they got to be careful, though, especially like well, anything that changes the or it gives you a, a more of a benefit. Yep. Yeah, right. Right. So, like, especially with weapons in, in first-person shooter games, so if you have, you can just go out and buy the most powerful weapon, like the noob cannon or something. Yep. And that what's that takes away the fun, and then everyone has to have a noob cannon. Otherwise, uh, you know, it's not. There's no skill involved. It's just <laughs> right. So this. Yeah, so I don't know. They have to be careful with that. Yeah, they have to be careful not to unbalance the gameplay, that's for sure. Which is why I think they'll probably stick the aesthetics for the most part. You know, they'll yeah. have a certain set of guns, and like in, in Battlefield 2 Bad Company, you know, you go up levels to get your uh, your new guns, but, you know, if they had an option where you could buy, like, a really cool uh, mod for your gun, which is purely aesthetic, I think uh, I may pay 350 for it if I use that weapon a lot. Who knows? Yeah, I think it's interesting. It you've already have people um, running hacks and running um, unintended unintended programs that level them up in games, and so there's always this sense of earning what you have, earning your items, earning your weapons and upgrades and achievements. And if people can buy them, then other people that don't have the money are going to be mad. Well. If people are hacking and they get them other ways, people are already mad. So there's there's a lot of um, a lot of issues with with the way things are awarded in games and new upgrades and and I don't think there's a really good solution for it. I mean, we just need a balance of being able to buy things with being able to earn things and trying to just make everybody happy <laughs> on both sides. Yep, agreed. All right, well, I can uh, take us into our spotlight here. This presentation on bump mapping. For those of you who are unfamiliar, hopefully you have a good idea of how it works by the end of this. So bump mapping is a technique that provides this illusion of geometric details, such as bumps and wrinkles. It's kind of in between uh, the, the area where you actually use vertices and primitives to, to create... Uh, detail and then uh, um, the other end is the like using textures to just map uh, art 
onto onto a primitive. So it's kind of in between the two, where it gives you almost like a the illusion that you have mo more vertices than you actually you actually do. So kind of like the details that are too complex to efficiently render just using polygons. So some examples are like if you if you're in games and you see like stairs and there's like X treads or dot treads on the steps you can actually see like a little bit of raised um, detail on the st on steps or on walls like the bricks on walls and mortar and uh, like even on the surface of an orange you can think about all the dimples there's not really generally you you wouldn't actually have vertices representing every little divot of an orange you just use bump mapping to do that and that's a much faster way of rendering it you don't have to push all these vertices down to the to the graphics pipeline then and uh this is, so how this works um our, our first podcast we talked about per pixel lighting where we use a normal uh, add a fragment to calculate the amount of light at that fragment uh, we're still doing the same thing here with bump mapping the difference is that we instead of getting an interpolated normal from the vertices we actually pull it from a texture and so we just pull these normals from a texture and calculate the lighting at that at that fragment and so these normal maps um, they basically just they're perturbations of of, of the normals and at, at every point on a surface, and that affects how the surface is lit. So, allowing, creating the illusion of additional details in that sense, and you create you can create these normals. Um, basically, you, you pull from a height map or a black and white image and calculate the rate of change between columns and rows of pixels, and you can take the the cross product of these rates of change to produce the normal at that pixel. And then also with these rates of change, it can also be used as your tangent by tangent vectors if you want to do calculations in tangent space, which is the most common, uh, or it's a more common way of doing it, allowing the most flexibility. And that you're, as you're calculating light, you're actually on the the surface at the at the normal and in, in the in the normal's local coordinate frame. So it doesn't matter if you transform your model or you you rotate it or scale it or whatever. Uh, you're always doing calculations at the very at the surface of the of the of where lights hitting. So if you if you use a function to perturb the normals, then the displacement to adjust the normal is just uh, the derivative of the function. And if you're if you're something it's more complex, so you're actually using uh, you're taking you want to create a bump map or a normal map from uh, an image, then you would you can use central differences to find to find your um, tangent and by tangent and then your your normal value. So kind of like you look ahead and you look behind at each pixel and you just calculate the the difference across those. The, you find the slope or the gradient uh, as you move across pixels. And or you can also just use render monkey, which is a ATI tool that calculates these normal maps for you including tangents and by tangent spaces. So it's there's a lot of utilities out there that are free if you don't want to go through the pain of doing it all yourself. I just submit your image and uh, process it. It'll generate a normal map for you. And these normal maps are stored um, XYZ uh, in, in texture files over like the red, green, blue slots that the normal textures would have. And so this kind of gives it a bluish look. You can actually uh, recognize normal maps pretty easily because they have a blue hint to them. And that's due to the Z value being the most dominant. So if you had a normal pointing straight up, Perpendicular to a surface at a point, it, it's x y z would be zero zero one, and uh, that would map to R G B values, so your red, green, blue values of one twenty eight, one twenty eight, two fifty five. 
and those are mapped from negative 1 to 1. That's why you get that uh, 0 mapping to 128. So uh, these, yeah, these bump maps, they give the illusion of geometry, and, but they don't actually occlude any view. And so that's, as you, as you narrow your angle, as you get closer to the surface, you can, you can easily see that it's just an illusion, that the surface is actually very flat. And uh, that's, that's kind of what brings us into parallax mapping is the, the way to address that problem. But are you guys, are you guys familiar with um, that in games where you're, you're running around and you get closer to a wall? You just notice that the, all the detail starts to flatten out. Have you seen that? Uh, in some games, yeah, I have. It's, yeah, now it's, um, it's much easier to notice in older games. But now, now a lot of games are supporting parallax mapping. It's much, um, the, the illusion is much more real. And they actually they kind of uh, prevent you from getting too close or to narrow that angle too much to keep that illusion real. And so a parallax mapping, uh, it kind of, in order to do that, it's uh, at the fragment, there's a height value that's looked up. So when this, um, when this, uh, when you get your view vector, or you're processing on the fragment, you go to your height map, and you see what your what the height is at that fragment, and you actually then adjust your texture coordinates based on that height, and based on the uh, the view vector coming into that fragment. So you offset that in order to get what appears to be um, a closer, like a, a, an occlusion of other pixels. And it's, uh, it's, if you guys have played, you know, there's it's in all sorts of games now, but one that stands out the most for me is um, Oblivion. When you start off in the cellar, and you're like in a cellar, it's all cobblestone rocks, and the, it looks incredible. And as you get, as you move around, you can see like the, it looks like each rock is actually, you know, full, fully mapped out and um, looks complex, like with a lot of vertices involved. But really, it's just they're flat walls with parallax mapping taking place so it's giving you this great illusion that there's you know these all these rocks and nice details and features and really it's just this trick where they're for every pixel it goes to this height map looks it up and adjusts what actual uh, texture is mapped to that yeah that's cool I never knew that yeah, that was one of the definitely definitely one of those games where you're like wow my graphics card can handle this holy crap <laughs> yeah yeah it's, it's a really cheap lookup and and they have to prevent you still from getting too close to the wall because otherwise it starts to look crazy. There's due to this this offset that occurs. Eventually, if you if your angle is steep enough, the offset is going to be enormous, and it almost becomes a random sampling of the texture at that point. And so they, you can take another step and actually limit the size, of the the amount of the offset, and that will kind of help. But then you start to notice the flattening a little earlier. So. If you just prevent your camera from getting too close to the wall, you put a buffer there, and then you can keep that illusion very real without without it breaking down. Hmm. So, so both of these techniques, um, neither of them add extra vertices to the calculations. It's just uh, some function call or or um, basically making illusions um, on the GPU using shaders. Basically, is that, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. You don't want to do this in um, on the client space, you want to do it on the GPU, and it, right there's no there's no additional vertices. So if you ever were to get completely uh, to look at, uh, with a very narrow angle, you'll you'll see that it's it's it is flat indeed. It's just a quad, and then as you as you come off that narrow angle, 
then the illusion starts to build up and take place. Okay, and with bump mapping, you said there were two different types of inputs. One is just um, a function that makes random values, and the other one is a, a texture, basically, that you could use to define what this is going to look like, or what um, how to display this object. Is, is that true? To, to generate the bump, the normal maps? Yep, to generate the normal maps. Yeah, there, there were two inputs. Wasn't one a function and one um, a texture? Right, yeah, so... Y- you can like if you if your if your displacement was just a sine wave, you you'd have a very I mean it looked like the surface was wave like had a, a sinusoidal wave to it, and so that's just a function. You just calculate uh, the derivative along that function uh, for your um, for your normal perturbation, and you can it's very it's very easy to do. But if you had something complex like say you took a picture like you had an image of the Death Star right, and you wanted to map that to a sphere and make it look like all those fine details of the Death Star are actually on there. The Death Star is already black and white for you, so it kind of shows the contrast, and it kind of shows depth through shadows and imagery. So you can just, you can then do this um, central differences thing as you actually go across pixel to pixel. And say you're at pixel X, Y, you look at the pixel ahead of you, so pixel X plus 1, Y, and pixel X minus 1, Y, and you calculate the, the slope across that. And you also do the same thing from uh, pixel x, y plus 1 and pixel x, y minus 1 to get that slope, the uh, the alternative slope there. So you have slopes in two different directions, and that gives you your basically the gradient going across. And you can calculate the normal from the cross product of those slopes. And that will tell you how how the, um, if you're going from a lower to a higher level, or, or vice versa, a higher to a lower. And so that's, that's kind of how those normals are generated. Then so either through... How do you handle Sorry, the how do you handle the back of the Death Star then? I mean, you have one perspective, right? You can view the front yeah. of it. Yeah, so that's you have to have multiple. Imi- I mean, for multiple angles, it gets a little tricky with with spheres or things like that. I mean, it's like when you take the world. You ever see the world on a map? It's distorted, like Antarctica is all stretched out, and um, or or it's they're cut out like in um, they keep they keep the ratio sizes right, and they just cut out pieces are missing. So that's, I mean, that's a little tricky. If you had like a flat, hopefully someone else had already generated a normal app of the Death Star for you, I guess. <laughs> that would be the easiest way to do it. But <laughs> for, for round, for objects that actually, you know, are not flat in general, like you, you lose data there. So you have to either stretch it or come up with some other clever way of, of uh, filling in data. Because you're right, yeah. If you take a if you take a sphere, a texture that's wrapped around a sphere, and you flatten it, it's I don't know. I guess it, it just reminds me of the whole taking the the world map and flattening it. Things are distorted or stretched. I see. Okay. So so, what was the difference between bump and parallax mapping? Parallax takes the extra takes a a, a different step where you're actually you're looking at a height. You when you're at the fragment, you're cal- you're looking up a height value, and then that height value basically uh, tells you how how far to displace your actual texture coordinates that you're going to use. So if you think of a think of a flat surface, and then you draw a wavy line over it, and that wavy line is your height map. And you have a view vector coming in to that height map, and it comes down and it intersects the flat surface, right? Because that's that's where your fragment is. It just knows that you're on a flat quad. But you look up the height of that 
of that uh, at that fragment. So you go back up and you look at the slope that's that wavy line above you, and you displace your um, texture lookup based on that height. And that what gives you, it gives you like the illusion that you're actually looking up textures that are closer to you. So because your your view vector is going to intersect earlier than the actual position on the flat quad. So it's kind of how it as you as you narrow down, you're getting pixels that are closer towards you, um, and it gives you the illusion that you're including pixels that are texels, I guess, including texels that are further away from you. Um, and that's kind of how it gives you a uh, height, an illusion of height to it. I see. So you, you get occlusion, basically, is one of the features of parallax mapping. Yeah, correct. Yep. It gives you more of an illusion of, of occlusion. And then uh, they, there's another step that's even more, a little more advanced, and it's not as common. It takes a lot more processing power. It's called relief mapping. And what this is, it's almost like you're basically you're doing ray casting. You're actually trying to find the intersection point of this height map. So the parallax mapping is just a is an estimation. It's a trick where you you're at the fragment, you just go to a height and you look it up, and based on that height you do a displacement. Well, this thing is actually trying to intersect the height map, and then at that intersection point, it's just looking up the texel value there. So it's it's um, a lot more process and intensive because you're you're basically ray casting you're, you're doing a little bit of um you're shooting a ray out for every fragment and trying to find out what where it intersects a height map which is also a difficult task or it's a costly task and you can speed that up with um spatial partitioning trees things like that but um that's not as common just because it's so process heavy yeah so this wouldn't be used for real-time rendering correct i uh, i guess i haven't I haven't seen it. I don't. I don't know. I should l- investigate that more. But just knowing that um, the amount of work to be done, I'd be surprised if they can get it done in real time. But maybe, maybe they, maybe that's already out there. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. I wonder um, why you would choose to use this over, you know, ray tracing plus using the real vertices if you're not doing real time rendering. I mean, people, you know, the Pixar movies have th- hundreds of thousands of vertices, and they take months to render movies um i suppose maybe this is sort of in between what they do and and uh some kind of real-time processing of for for video games some kind of in-between algorithm yeah well you always got to plan for the uh, start devising strategies and algorithms and, and software for the future hardware so this is a technique that i imagine will be very common more and even now, like parallax mapping is so common that if you don't have that in your engine, um, it's noticeable, I guess. And um, relief mapping will probably be become the norm after a while, after GPUs become more um, more powerful. And then ray, who knows? I don't know if ray casting will ever be, or uh, ray tracing itself will will ever be uh, the norm. But that's if we have infinite processing power, I guess. Then yeah, definitely. <laughs> Well, that was a great presentation, Sean. Yeah, thanks, uh, thanks. Yeah, I think, I'm sure everybody learned a lot from that. I, I definitely did. I think you've told me this twice before, but it's good to hear it again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that's what our users are looking for. They wanted um, more technical spotlight uh, discussions about graphics programming, and I think Sean delivered today. So hopefully everybody out there is pretty happy with this. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, I got some uh, references, too. Here. I think, um, well, I got a lot of... I think real real time rendering by uh, Thomas Akin Muller. That's that's a really good book. That's where I learned a lot of the stuff at. And then also uh, the OpenGL ES 2.0 programming guide 
want to say um, for those that have the book, uh, they have a the actual bump map shader implementation on page 280. Uh, it talks about how to implement bump mapping in a vertex and fragment shader. So that's really good stuff to look up. For those who are more interested, go further in depth. Very cool, Sean. Thanks so much for doing that. <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs> uh, let's see. We're on to the conclusion already. We're we're done with the show, guys. Um, does anybody want to wrap it up here? Just a reminder uh, <clears throat> to join us in August. You guys remember the exact date of our presentation? August eighth. August eighth, two thousand eleven, at the Java User Group group in the Twin Cities. Um, if you're in the Twin Cities area, look them up. On their website, type in Java User Group Twin Cities into Google, and you'll find their website. And uh, come join us. We're going to yeah. have a nice little presentation for you about just Android uh, game development in general, from the marketing perspective, from the development perspective, from the business model perspective, just kind of giving out all our secrets. So <laughs> come on over if you want some good, juicy secrets to take home. <laughs> also, uh, we've got... Um, uh, website, you know, disgruntledrats.com. Please friend us on Facebook if you want to be entered in our monthly uh, drawing. We give away a t-shirt every month with our cool logo on it, and uh, they're pretty hot items. I get quite a few emails from people saying, oh, I hope I win next month, and stuff like that. So, please um, please friend us for a chance to, to get in on that goodness. Um, and, you know, Donations help improve your chance of winning, <laughs> is that right? Is that right? <laughs> We do not run an ethical uh, gambling service for our uh, just our our T-shirt process, but uh, yeah, do do like us and um, yeah, visit our website, shoot us an email, get a hold of us. We want to hear what you have to think. You know, we're all in this this fight to make awesome Android games together. So uh, join us. Yeah, Sean got new T-shirts too, didn't you, Sean? Oh, yeah. You should put a picture yep. of those out there. Yeah, we should throw. I will. I, yeah, they're a darker green, so I I like it a bit more. It's it's good change, good mix. Yeah. Next month or next next order, maybe we'll throw a, a bright hunter orange out there for for our hunters. There you go. Yeah. Ooh, we'll figure orange. it out. Yeah. Yeah. That would be awesome. I don't think I'd ever take it off. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. Apologies for uh, the switching of dates on our user group thing. We got punted by Oracle and. We know that Oracle makes Java, so we uh, we decided to be friendly and let them present in July. So tomorrow, uh, July 11th, Oracle's presenting, and we've been moved to August. So apologize if you went to the um, presentation on Monday and you expected to see us, because um, the dates were changed. <laughs> yeah, Oracle, who are they anyway? Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. All right, cool. You guys got any alibis? Good here. All right. Well, that concludes good, good. our podcast, and now you get to listen to the nice animated lady. Thanks, everybody. Bye, guys. Thank you for listening to the Disgruntled Rats podcast. Please visit our website for more information at www.disgruntledrats.com.